Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Good morning. It's good to be here with you guys today on Labor Day weekend. We're able to give Jesse a little bit of a, a break from his labors. And something I said the last time I spoke, I feel is worth repeating this time around. That as a guest speaker, I know that you have two questions in your mind right now. Number one, is this going to be any good? And number two, how long is this going to go? So regarding the first question, we are going to rely on the power of God to help teach us what we need to be taught this morning. And in terms of how long is this going to take, I'm about five cups of coffee deep this morning, so we got, uh, we got plenty of juice to get us through. So this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, so I'm going to go ahead, read the passage, then we'll pray, and then we'll see what God has for us this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 starting in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And going on into chapter 2 through verse 5, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, I pray that my words would be pleasing to you. I pray that our hearts would be open, that we would hear what you want us to hear, and that we would see what you want us to see. We pray this in your name. Amen. Stories are powerful, aren't they? There's something about a way a story engages us that only a story can. They touch our minds, they touch our hearts, 
They help us to see things from a different perspective. Stories are memorable. We teach them, or we use them to teach, we use them to persuade, and we use them to ask and answer the big, difficult questions of life. There's something about communicating an idea in context of a story that really helps it make sense. I can tell you about selfless love, but if I read you the story of the giving tree, or I read you the story of the gift of magi, you see it. It's been said that if you want someone to know the truth, you tell them. If you want someone to love the truth, you tell them a story. Matthew Dix is a storyteller, and a very fine one at that. He's the author of the book Storytelling, Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. You see, Matthew is a winner of what is known as the Moth Grand Slam. And he's not just won it once, but he's won it five times. Now, the moth got its name from the founder because when he, would, when he was a boy and he would spend many nights on a front porch with friends, family, telling stories, moths would fly around the porch light. Now, the moths are held regionally, and the winner of each of the moths get together in New York once a year for the Moth Grand Slam. And that is what Matthew has won five times. And what makes Matthew an interesting person is that he has lived a life that few of us could compare our lives against his. Matthew has been clinically dead twice and resuscitated twice. He's been homeless. He's been arrested and tried for a crime he did not commit. And according to Matthew, if you ask him what makes an interesting story, Matthew says it's those moments of transformation in your life. He calls them the five-second moments. Moments where everything seems to stop, you're processing what's going on around you, and you come out of that moment a different person. So according to Matthew, there's three parts to a good story. Who you were, a catalyst for change, who you became. Who I was, something changed me, who I became. Sounds like the gospel, right? And that's what we're going to look at this morning, really focus in on that catalyst for change. And as we do so, there's three things that we're going to look at. First, we're going to look at the power of the gospel. Second, we're going to look at the wisdom of the gospel. And third, we're going to look at the calling of the gospel. And after we go through that, we're going to see that there's probably a question that's been lurking around from what Jesse's been speaking about over the last six weeks. And we'll try and address that question. Now, as we look at the power of the gospel, we're going to do it in sort of a roundabout way because we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And immediately before the part that I just read, Paul is talking about divisions in the church. So naturally, when you're a guest speaker, you obviously want to come up and talk about divisions in the church, right? Yes. <laughs> no, we are completely avoiding that. But in order to address those divisions, Paul really teaches them about the gospel and the truths of the gospel. People were bickering, there was infighting, and Paul says that people were grouping together in these little factions under specific teachers. So Paul makes an appeal, and then he gives them a laundry list of all the reasons why they should follow his appeal. Every time you see four at the beginning of a verse, that's another one of Paul's reasons. So he makes his appeal that they should be of one mind and one judgment, gives them all his reasons, and then Paul hits at the root issue that the Corinthian church had. If you look to verse 31, it's pride. 
They were boasting. And Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Pride had clouded their understanding of the gospel, and pride was what was causing divisions in the church. So Paul's approach to dealing with their pride is to get them a right understanding of the gospel. Because when you have a right understanding of your place in the gospel and a right understanding of God's place in the gospel, you realize that there's no excuse for pride. So the power of the gospel, the wisdom of the gospel, and the calling of the gospel. Power. What exactly is power? We often talk about strength and power, and we use the words interchangeably, but if you can allow me to push up my engineering glasses for a minute, we're going to see that they're actually quite different. So when we talk about strength in the world of engineering, strength is how much force you can actually apply to an object. So for those of you that aren't engineers but are into literature, we'll talk about Atlas, the Greek mythology character Atlas, who, after he lost a key battle, was destined by Zeus, or better yet, condemned by Zeus, to hold up the heavens for all of eternity. And there's a common depiction that we see of Zeus, of a man holding up the earth literally on his shoulders. And while that's an incredible feat of strength, there's absolutely no power in doing so. You see, power is a measure of the rate of work being done. And from a technical perspective, for work to be done, something has to move or something has to change. The word that Paul uses in the Greek for power is actually the word dunamis. And it's the word that we use to derive our word dynamic. So power implies that something is happening. Things aren't just staying still like Atlas holding the earth right where it is on his shoulders. For there to be power, something has to change or something has to move. We just came back from a vacation out in the Pacific Northwest about a week and a half ago, and the obvious illustration of power is water. You see waves crashing into the shoreline. If you've ever been out in the water and a wave catches you unsuspectingly, you are intimately aware of the power of water. I asked Owen, our, our five-year-old, when we came back to describe what a wave was like using his words. And his exact words were, I'm not exactly sure how to spell that word, but I think he captures the idea of power. He understands what power is. And yet the funny thing about water is that water can be the most serene, the most peaceful thing in the world. If you've ever been on a lake at sunrise that's absolutely glass calm, it is the most peaceful thing. Water's power comes when it's in motion. So when Paul speaks about the power of God in the gospel, he's speaking about a gospel that moves things, that changes things. Paul says in verse 18 that to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. In verse 24, he says, Christ crucified is the power of God. And if we go into Romans, it's a verse we all know very well, 116, Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. The power of the gospel is this, is that it's able to take a dead man separated from God and make him alive and united with God. But Paul gives us a bit of a warning back in verse 17 when he says that Christ sent him to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ 
be emptied of its power. So what is he talking about here? I've got to take a little parentheses here for a minute because when you're trying to put together a message and the passage says not to use words of eloquent wisdom, it kind of puts you in a little bit of a conundrum, doesn't it? Because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to think about how do you creatively and effectively communicate what the author is trying to say. And yet, that's our human nature, right? We, we take a process, and as people, we try and improve it. But Paul specifically warns us against that. Why? Because salvation is by grace through faith alone, not of works so that no one can boast. Paul says the only thing we need to do is preach the gospel. The power to save alone is the gospel. Matthew Dix was asked if he ever embellishes his story. And he says no, because stories become most compelling when you drill them down to the one thing that really makes a change. Think about the blind man in John chapter 9. Very simple. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. Who I was, something changed me, who I became. The only thing that can take us from dead to alive is the gospel, and that is the power of the gospel. So now that we've seen that the power of the gospel is for our salvation, Paul gets on to talk a little bit about wisdom. And in verse 19, Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 14. And it's a time in Israel's history where they had drifted pretty far away from God. They had substituted their own teachings, their own traditions in place of God himself. And God says that he will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. And really that statement's an indictment against Israel, that they had taken who God was and they had replaced their own wisdom in place of who God is. John Piper says that wisdom is the factual knowledge, the situational insight, and the necessary resolve that together have the greatest likelihood of success in achieving the intended goal. God has the perfect factual knowledge. He's all-knowing. God has the perfect situational insight. He has intuitive knowledge because he is the creator. And God has the necessary resolve. He's all-powerful. And so what does Paul say about the wisdom of God? He says it makes the wisdom of the world foolish. And Paul comes back to this idea a little bit later in chapter 3 when he says, If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So God's really kind of thrown this whole thing upside down for us here on earth, right? He's made it so that we can't know him in and of ourselves. Philosophers from the beginning of the earth have been trying to look out at the world around them, make sense of nature, make sense of life, and make sense of God. And yet God made it so that we cannot be known, or that he cannot be known from a secular perspective. Certainly we can look at creation and know that a God exists, but we cannot know who God truly is without him. Paul says, through the wisdom of God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Why? Because when someone comes face to face with a message that seems entirely foolish to man, and yet they believe, the glory alone can go to God. Now, typically, if you want to create a movement that people want to be a part of, you, 
you want to make it attractive. So you do a little market research, you come up with a strategic plan, and then you execute that plan. And Paul actually gives us a little bit of insight into that market research. First thing he talks about are the Jews. He says the Jews demand signs. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted a strong and powerful Messiah that would rescue them. They had built him up to be a certain image in their mind. They wanted to see a king, and they did see a king, but he wasn't the king that they made him out to be in their mind, and they couldn't get past it. The Greeks, they wanted to seek wisdom. They wanted to be enlightened. They wanted to try and use their minds, again, to understand nature, understand the world around them, and try and understand if there is a God or what was going on in the cosmos. Plato said there would be no end to the troubles of humanity until philosophers became kings and kings became philosophers. So the idea of surrendering yourself to a weak man who hung on a cross makes absolutely no logical sense. The wisdom of the gospel is this. We preach a message that is foolish to the world around us so that when someone believes, God gets all the glory. So we've looked at the power of the gospel, we've looked at the wisdom of the gospel, and now let's look at the calling of the gospel. And in verse 20, Paul basically tells them, look around. Where are the wise people? Where are the debaters? You don't see these people around. Why not? Because a message that only gives glory to God is foolish to man. Instead, Paul tells them in verse 26 that most of them weren't anything special according to worldly standards. And not only that, but in a way, he kind of talks down to them a little bit as you keep going on when he calls them foolish, weak, low, despised. Paul didn't exactly read any John C. Maxwell about uplifting leadership, but in one sense, even though he devalues these people with those adjectives, in another sense, he completely correctly assesses their value, because there's a key statement that Paul repeats three times. God chose, God chose, God chose. There is no credit we can claim in the work of salvation. God chose us, God called us. And when he has called us, it's then and only then that a foolish message begins to make sense. C.S. Lewis speaks to this in Mere Christianity. When he says, my reason was that Christianity simply does not make sense until you have faced the sort of facts I have been describing. Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power, it is after all this, and not a moment sooner, that Christianity begins to talk. It is only through the power of God working in the regenerate heart that the message of the cross begins to make sense. God chose us, not the other way around. We have no means of boasting. All glory goes to God. And yet, interestingly enough, even though the work of salvation and the calling is entirely God's work, for some reason, God has called us lowly men to preach a foolish message to a dying people. Paul was fully committed to preaching that gospel. 
In fact, if we go back to Romans 1.16, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. We already saw the power of the gospel, but why wasn't Paul ashamed? And I think if you go back to the story that Jesse told a few weeks ago about the Chicago World's Fair, it was the Parliament of World Religions, and somebody used the analogy of blind men going in, touching an elephant, and trying to describe what it was they were touching. And the reason Paul wasn't ashamed was because he had seen the whole picture. He had come face to face with Jesus. He had seen it. He had experienced it. He knew the power of the gospel. God calls us, and he calls us to preach the gospel. So how does Paul preach the gospel? Because in chapter 2, he basically lays out a model for how we should go about it. First, in verse 1, he didn't use lofty speech or wisdom. He lets the gospel stand on its own. Second, in verse 2, he knew nothing but Christ crucified. So what does that mean to know nothing but Christ crucified? It means that that would have been all he spoke about. The people around him probably got sick of hearing about it because that's all he spoke about. Why? Because he knew the power of the gospel. Third, he spoke with weakness and trembling. The message is what's powerful, not the messenger. Fourth, in verse 4, his life was a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul's conversion from someone who was persecuting Christians to the man who was championing the growth of the faith would have been testimony of the power of God in and of itself. In verse 5, he did all of this so that, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's no place for man to insert himself into the gospel because God calls us to keep the gospel entirely about himself. The power of the gospel, the wisdom of the gospel, the calling of the gospel. So all of this leads us to an interesting question that's kind of left over from what Jesse's been talking about over the last six weeks. He's been talking about these big questions, questions that we as believers wrestle through as we try and grow in our faith and understand who God is. But it's not just us as believers who are wrestling through those questions. Our neighbors are wrestling through those questions. Our coworkers are wrestling through those questions. They're trying to make sense of the world around them because everybody has questions and things on this earth don't make sense. So the question is this. If the power to save alone is the gospel, then what is the role of apologetics in the work of evangelism? Now, Paul says the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. So if we go back to our who I was, something changed me, who I am now, if we are living a life that is based on a foolish message, it's going to be obvious, and it's going to generate questions. Peter says the same thing. He says, we should be prepared to make a defense when somebody asks for the hope that's inside of us. Now, typically, in that verse, we're drawn to the be prepared to make a defense part, right? We want to know all the little proofs. We want to know the tactics. We want to have all of that available so that we can provide an airtight defense of Christianity. And yet, I don't think that's the key thing to what Peter's saying. And I also don't think that's the key thing to what Paul's saying. 
I think the key word in all of that is the word hope. Because when our hope is in a foolish message, it changes our lives. The starting point of apologetics is a life that's been transformed by the power of a foolish message, the power of the gospel. Apologetics should be a natural outcome of our own growth. It's an outflow, not an end in itself. And as we work through these big questions, we can speak with conviction about our own journey. And then we can take someone, get them into the word, and we can show them the signposts in scripture that guided us along our journey. And then as God works in their life, eventually they're going to have to work through that issue on their own. When you boil it down, apologetics is about belief. It's not about providing a scientific proof for the parting of the Red Sea or for how Christ's body was resurrected. Those are interesting questions, but really it all comes down to the bigger question of belief. And I think when you look at apologetic audiences, there's really two types of people that you might get into a discussion with. On one side, you have people that are completely committed to rejecting who God is. And if they look at any of these little questions, they decide that if they can disprove something good enough in their mind to any one of these questions, they've taken down the entirety of Scripture, and therefore, they're good with that. I think on the other side, you have people whose hearts are softening to who God is. God is working in their life. And there are legitimate big questions that they have, questions that they can't reconcile between their mind and their heart. And so they need help to try and make that last step. But again, what apologetics is doing is taking those questions and it's refocusing them away from, do I believe in the parting of the Red Sea, to the question, do I believe in the God that parted the Red Sea? People don't change their minds because someone outsmarted them. I mean, if you lose in a debate, you might admit defeat, but it's not going to change your mind. Take any hot-button topic of the day. Illegal immigrant detention. I don't care where you stand on the issue. If I took the other side, soundly defeated you in a, in a debate, how much have I changed your mind? Not one bit. If anything, I've probably done the exact opposite. And because of your defense mechanisms, I've probably actually pushed you further into your own belief. People change their minds when they come face to face with something, they wrestle through it, they internalize it, they think about it, and eventually it changes their mind. Now, some of you know that cycling has been a big part of my life. And I'm not talking the cool cycling like the Giulianos do on their Harley Davidsons. I'm talking the spandex-clad, traipsing all over Hillendale cycling, thousands of hours in DeKalb County. And I love the gear of cycling. I love the competition of cycling. But what I really love most about cycling is the relationships. Because there's something about suffering. I think especially for guys. <laughs> there's something about suffering that really builds strong friendships. Because when you're 90 miles into a ride, it's 100 degrees, you're climbing up a steep gravel road, you have no choice but to be authentic. You are exposed for who you are. And after you get a number of people and you have these experiences with a number of people, you begin to build a community, a community of friends, a community of people that you trust. And one of the guys in our group, 
thought it would be a really good idea to get together on a monthly basis and talk about some of the bigger questions of life. So we would get together every third Thursday of the month, so we called our group's name the Thursday group, and we would meet in somebody's basement, bring your own beverage, you'd have all the snacks you could possibly want, and we would talk. And we would talk sometimes about nothing of any consequence, and other times we would get into some really, really deep discussions. Because something I learned through that group is, I can't speak for everybody, but from looking at that group, what I learned was that guys in their mid to late 30s are getting to a unique point in life where they've got some life in the rearview mirror, but life isn't figured out. They have big questions that don't make sense. And when you look at them, oftentimes people in this group were still teenagers trying to figure out why have I not gotten further in life? Why is my family falling apart? Why am I not happy? And when you are in that spot, you fake what you can fake, and what you can't, you try and push down to a place that you can ignore. And if you really got in and pressed on those points of insecurity, you would be pushing on some of the most fragile part of a man's soul. And it's from that place. That's where these big questions come from. That's where the questions about who God is start. Because you could take any one of those questions and turn it into an apologetics question. If God loved me, why is my family falling apart? If God wanted the best for me, why am I not further along in life? Paul's whole point when he's talking to the Corinthians is that they would not be prideful, but that they would have humility. And Peter, when Peter says how to address them, he says to do it in gentleness and respect. People change their minds when you give them the grace and you give them the space to work through things on their own. Because eventually, if you can get them into the Word, they're going to be at a crossroads in life where they have to ask the question for themselves, do I believe? Apologetics always circles back to the gospel. The power to save is from God. The calling is from God. Therefore, we preach a message where God alone can get the glory. Matthew Dix is a storyteller and a very good one clinically dead and resuscitated twice, homeless, arrested and tried for a crime he didn't commit. And you'd think from all of these life experiences that he has some pretty good stories to tell, right? But the funny thing is, he won't tell those stories. Because I can't relate to being dead on a table twice. You probably can't relate to being arrested and tried for a crime that you didn't commit. The most powerful stories are the stories where we see ourselves. Because when we see something about ourselves in a story, that story becomes a mirror to us. We see ourselves for who we are. James says that looking into the word is like looking into a mirror. We see ourselves. Our deepest depravity, our greatest longings in the story of the Bible. By design, 
No story is more powerful and more universal than the story of the Bible. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. The gospel is powerful because it takes a dead man who's separated from God and makes him alive and reunites him with God. Get people to the word, get people to the gospel, and then let God get the people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that in your wisdom, you take lowly men like us to preach a foolish message to a dying people so that you alone can get the glory. Help us to lean into you more. Help us to lean into trusting your work in that process. Help us to get into the muddy waters of life, to jump into them, to walk through them with people, and to get people into your word. Because when people are in your word, we trust that you will do a work in their hearts. We trust that you'll be working in the hearts of those around us. We trust that you will continue to work in the future in the hearts of those around us through the power of the cross. We pray this in your name. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.